the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If there is a red thread which winds its way through today's texts with their topics of tables and feasts, the thing they have in common is contained in one word, a Latin root, but we'll flesh it out in English. The root is excipere, which means to take out or to make an exception in English. An exception is a person or thing that is excluded from a general statement or does not follow a rule. One is exceptional who stands out, stands apart, because they don't fit the pattern, who is unusual, uncommon, and extraordinary. One can stand out in various ways, for good reasons and not so good. If one sticks out, it is perceived negatively. But one is also exceptional who stands out positively by virtue of being outstanding, unique in the sense of being in a class of one's own, sui generis, one of a kind. From this we also derive the word exceptionalism, defined as the perception that a species, country, society, institution, movement, individual, or time period is exceptional unusual or extraordinary in some way. We'll leave this notion for future investigation. We have enough that is exceptional today to deal with. In the gospel, we have the case of a group of invited guests who take exception to one another's presence on the guest list and absent themselves on block from a wedding feast. Let me explain. In the ancient world, when you got a formal dinner invitation, usually verbally, you were also informed about who else was on the guest list, uh, maybe informally. Then, as now, you would rather dress up than dress down. Why waste your precious time and the opportunity for social advancement by way of future name dropping, hanging around with those whose names you would rather not drop? Thank you very much that people were picky about not so much what they ate, although that too could be used for the purpose of socially distinguishing oneself, but also who they ate with is set forth in this account from Pliny the Younger, who lived just after Christ. I quote, some very elegant dishes were served up to my host and a few more of the company, while those who were placed before the rest were cheap and paltry. He had three different sorts of wine. One was for himself and me, the next for friends of a lower order, and the third for freedmen, his and mine. One who sat next to me took notice of this and asked me if I approved. Not at all, I told him. My method is to give all the company the same fare, for when I make an invitation, it is to sup not to be censored, not to be jockeying for position within the community. Everyone whom I have placed on an equality with myself by admitting to my table, I treat as an equal in all particulars. This must put you to great expense, said he, end quote. 
So the host in our story has his initial offer refused because somebody in the mixture must not have been up to somebody else's liking. The host then extends the invitation to a very unexceptional group of people, the sort that would never make the society page. A random cross-section of the hoi polloi that includes all whom they found, both bad and good. That's pretty inclusive, a group. Then it is the host's turn, however, to go into this group and single one of the guests out and then throw them out for violating the dress code. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where many are called but few are chosen. You have to hear the call, apparently, but that doesn't mean you make the final cut. Now, it's easy to read all this eschatologically, and that's exactly how it's usually read. The host is God, of course, and all this is a preview of what lies ahead. As we prepare to present our invitations at the pearly gates, have them checked against the list of invites, and hopefully be ushered in. As Anglican theology is at least officially reformed, what it is in past gets us anybody's guess, but if you look in the Articles of Religion, you will see that our Reformed theology gives us room for hope. And if our names are in that book, and we know that it's entirely God's doing that gets them there, we know that no power on heaven or earth will wipe them out. Once in, always in. God's wrath will not fall on the believer. It's already fallen on Jesus. That seems to be the point of the whole exercise. And it's in his name and through his righteousness, not our own, that we go on in when our names are called. Seems simple enough. We seem to forget this from time to time. I want to spell this out. God's wrath is real, but it does not fall on us. We may still make this place a living hell, but our place in heaven was settled at the cross 2,000 years ago, and nothing we can say or do can undo it. All is forgiven, and so we carry on. We have our white robes as well, our wedding garments. So is the text saying that we still have the right to refuse the offer even at the last minute? No. Again, God has done this, and what God does stands. Now, many believe that the parable is not actually about God, but I don't want to give that one up. Surely, however, the good guest list would have been written in Hebrew with the names of the people of God writ large. In this first recension, we follow N.T. Wright, and we might say that Israel herself refused the initial offer, demurred, and the task presented to her to be God's image in and for this world, and now the doors have been opened to the Gentiles, the church, that would be us. We also may read this parable, as many have, who say that the man who is not dressed appropriately and is thrown into outer darkness is Jesus Christ himself, who is thrown naked up on the cross and then goes down to hell we might hope to harrow or at least bring a few faithful souls out of it. That remains a matter of speculation. But the doors have been opened to the Gentiles. That's the church, and so we are in. Paul's text, however, points to something even more than this, a surreptitious generosity in our God 
and a disarming freedom to the work of the Holy Spirit. Whatever is true, he says, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are all universal uh, affirmative categories. He means whatever you find, wherever you find it, you will find that the spirit is free to go where he will, like a will-o'-the-wisp, inspiring those whom he chooses to gift with beauty, truth, and goodness, and the signs of God's presence and God's character. We read the beginning of Romans again. That's spelled out pretty clearly. The church has no exclusive claim on any of these, as a little <laughs> circumspection will reveal. But wherever we find these things in the world, we know that God has been there and is there to be discovered. This means that some of the most outstanding, exceptional, and unique works of art, say, are often found to be the product of those both good and bad. I unfortunately missed Dr. Wright's iteration of his lectures in Wheaton. I picked up one of the ones he'd already given at Calvin College in Grand Rapids. And someone asked him, you know, between writing all these books, do you ever have any spare time for hobbies, Dr. Wright? He said, I listen to music. He said, right now I'm listening to a lot of Sibelius. He said, especially the symphony number no. seven. And something in my heart just went, praise God, you know. <laughs> That's where I turn when I am in need, too, for God's presence, God's comfort, God's reassurance. The fact that I do not know what Sibelius' religious convictions were, that it would take an act of generosity to say that Sibelius was a Christian, was something that both Dr. Wright and I were very much aware of. And both Dr. Wright and I would agree that there is not a bar in any of Sibelius's symphonies does not, that does not give to, to me and to him a better witness to the gospel than many reams or the life output of many composers who would have called themselves Christian. That is the mystery and the enigma of God the Holy Spirit's utter freedom. Whatever Sibelius intended, I consider it an act of grace that that work might be useful to me in bringing to life my understanding of what the gospel is all about. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So he's leaving the unworthy who are really the worthiest in the culture and going to the utterly unworthy, by anyone's definition, those who met at the crossroads were just the common average human beings. And he's saying, we'll find our guests in there. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. No filter. They gathered them all, both bad and good. I emphasize this text and this point because we believe that what will be the best of its kind will have to be that which is the best that the church has to offer. 
But God is kinder than that, and thank God for that. Common grace allows for some uncommon gratuities, which are found just where God put them, where we least expect. And what humans consider worthy of praise, which so often finds its way into the church and shaping the agenda of the church, thank you very much, God may or may not affirm. But we must be very wary of turning up our nose at the guest list or at the menu when God has been assembling his great feast for our delectation. Our fellow diners may not be the companions we sought. The dishes we share may not be right away to our taste. But if we give them a try, we may find that we develop a liking for them. And with the Holy Spirit and Holy Scripture as our guides, giving us that discernment through which we approach all things, we may find that some of these unexpected gifts nourish us better than what we would have brought to the table ourselves. We must beware then of putting God in a box. It's one thing to like only that and those that are just like us. In God's eyes, we are more alike than we like to believe in the ways that he likes to see. We dare not to presume to know where and in whom he is at work right now. Know this, we are all to be gathered in one place one day. Better to be ready today. And one thing more, if you and I imagine that we know who's on the guest list and who is not, we should be ready for a surprise. Amen.